move into Malachi chapter two, and there's two phrases you really need to know from the last two weeks that will set the foundation for what we're talking about today. First is when God says, I have loved you. That's the foundational statement that's behind all of these things. When God is upset, it's because he has loved us. If God is, seems to be demanding, or if God seems to be petty at times, or, or judgmental, or, or wrathful, and angry, it's because he says, I have loved you. And then the second phrase, which kind of explains how he feels, you show contempt for my name. When I was in uh, college, uh, back in 1968, my dad was the recreation director for Ketchikan, Alaska, which is a big uh, fishing town up in the southern part of the Alaskan panhandle. And he thought it would be a good idea if I came up there for the summer and got a job and earned a lot more money than I could earn down here. And I thought, sure, I'll do that. So I go up there and found out that the fishing season didn't even start for for another month. And so I ended up uh, going to some interviews and got a job out on an island working for uh, Newmont Explorations. Newmont, it's a division of Newmont Mining, which is a huge mining corporation based out of Nevada. Um, But they had mining operations up there. They were going after uh, where there used to be copper mines, and then the copper mines sort of petered out, but because of newer technology, they were able to go into some of these places and actually uh, mine the copper when in the past it had been, there hadn't been enough copper there to make money. And so my job basically, and the job of the others in our cabin, was to go out into the woods and cut perfectly straight grid lines through the forest. And uh, so that's what we did every day. I, I was armed with a machete and one of the other guys had a, had a chainsaw, and we went out cutting all these woods, and it was a very interesting summer. Um, being out on this island, you know, we never showered. We had no restroom facilities except for an outhouse uh, about a quarter of a mile away, um, knowing that our, our cook sometimes would go out there and you'd take a shotgun and just, you know, blast the outhouse and uh, hopefully we weren't in it at the time. Uh, and, uh, but it, it was an interesting summer fighting. It rained an average of every other day and when it wasn't raining there were just millions of, of insects that all seemed to want to bite you. And so it was quite an event. About five weeks into um, the summer, uh, another fellow and myself uh, were given permission to go into town for uh, a couple of days just to take a break. And so we caught the next seaplane out and went in to catch a can. And the first thing we did was we needed to find a place to stay. So we went to the best hotel in town and walked in. Remember, we had, we had no changes of clothes. We were wearing the clothes that we worked in. Uh, we smelled, we had the same smells that we smelled when we worked in, out in the woods. Our hair was, was by this time long and stringy. We, were, we hadn't shaved since we'd been out in the woods. And, and so we walked in up to the desk and we said, we'd like a couple of rooms for the night. And he said, man, we are all filled up. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we tried to talk him into giving us a room, but no go. So after we left, we came up with a little plan. We found a payphone, and I called up the hotel, and I said, this is, this is Jim Huntimer. I used my name because my dad was recreation director for the city, and possibly he would recognize that name. And he said, um, we're from Newmont Explorations, which was a huge company. They were pouring lots of money into the local economy and everybody knew who they were. We're from Newmont Explorations and we need a room for two for the evening. Yes, sir. Okay, we got it. You just come in. We've got your room ready for you. And and so we walked back into the hotel as we were and they couldn't really say anything because now we had a reserved room. The power of a name is important. We made use of the name Newmont Explorations. Names are very important. Now, that wouldn't have worked except for the fact that the people of Ketchikan liked Newmont Explorations because they were spending a lot of money there. Uh, We had carte blanche to 
to order any kind of groceries we wanted, any kind of supplies we wanted. Nobody questioned what we ordered, but the people got paid, and of course they charged premium prices, and they loved Newmont Explorations, and so the name carried a lot of power with it. But if this had been a company that had come in and, and had wreaked havoc in the community, it would have been a different story. If the name had carried negative connotations with it, it wouldn't have had any power at all. And anyone associated with that name would be held in, in disrepute. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to get anything and you'd actually hide your association with it. Well, that is kind of what we're talking about today. Last week we talked about how the people of Israel showed contempt for God's name. To give this more of an emotional identification for us, I, some of you have probably had the experience where you're taking your small preschooler or maybe first or second grade child into a grocery store and that child throws a tantrum. They want, want something and you said no and they throw this loud tantrum because they know you're in this public place. They know everybody's looking at you and they know they can use that as a weapon to try to get what they want. Some of you have experienced that, right? And those of you who haven't, you've probably been in a store where you saw that happening. And of course, what's going through your mind? Can't you do something to shut that kid up? That's almost a universal experience that we have. We can't stand it. And if you can imagine what that mom or dad is feeling, this child is literally trying to blackmail them into giving them what they want. And, and they're thinking, everybody around, what are they thinking about me? And it's almost like no matter what I do, there are people here who are gonna criticize what I do. The right thing to do is never to let the child win because otherwise you're just teaching the child to do it again. But no matter how you handle the situation, you're under pressure and people are going to start judging you. Well, this is a little bit of what is behind what God is feeling and what he is expressing through his words in today's passage only it's much, much greater than that. Let's start off with uh, verse one of chapter two. Very short verse. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. That's all it says. But what he has to say isn't about all the people who've been doing the things that he talked about in the last chapter. It's for the priests, the spiritual leaders of the people. And... There's an important message here for anyone here who is a spiritual leader of people as well. This admonition, I'm admonishing you. You've been doing something wrong, and I'm admonishing you. And he's going to use some strong words. The next verse, verse 2, it's a conditional statement. That means that whatever God is saying is going to happen may or may not happen depending on what you do. And so, let's look at the two conditions. The first one, if you do not listen, if you do not listen, uh, something unpleasant is gonna happen. I mean, how often, for those of you who have children, have you sat down with your child and said, listen to me, because the child just doesn't seem to be paying attention. Maybe if you're a teacher, you've had that same kind of experience, or if you babysat anybody else's child, listen to me, because you're not just concerned that the child understands the words, but understands the emotion behind them. Whether, listen to me, it's just a joke, don't take this too seriously. That's on one end. The other end, listen to me. This is really, really serious. And you need to pay attention to what I'm saying. And that's what God is saying here. If you don't listen to me, something you're not gonna like is gonna happen. The second condition, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty. If you don't set your heart to honor my name. He's talking about making a conscious condition that whatever they do, that God will be honored. 
And God is very passionate because when he talks about honoring my name, he's talking about his reputation in the world. What was the very first thing God says in this book? I have loved you. And that's not just Israel, whom God poured out an incredible amount of love on, but for the, he loves the entire world because he made all these people and they are dear to him. One of the first indications we had in the history of Israel that God was not just concerned with Israel. Remember the story of, or many of you would remember the story of when the Israelites were about to go into the land to conquer it, they sent 12 spies into the land. The spies took, I think, 40 days or so to, to look it over, they came back. The land is absolutely great, but there are giants there and we're not gonna be able to defeat them. That's what 10 of the spies said. Two of the spies says, no, we need to trust God. But the 10 held the day, and because of that, God said to the people, you're not willing to trust me, so I'm going to not take you into the land right now. In fact, this entire generation is going to die out in the time that I'm gonna keep you out here in the wilderness, and the next generation will go into the land. But there were two exceptions to what he said. A man named Joshua, a man named Caleb. Those are the two spies that says, no, we can trust God and we will defeat those people. God will carry out his promise if we just trust him. And the interesting thing is that Joshua was an Israelite, Caleb was a Gentile. Even at the beginning when God was promising to take them into this land, he was not just focused on the Israelites. And throughout their history, there was always provision for people anywhere in the world to come to them so they could learn about their God. God's name is important to him because that's what determines what people will think about him. That's what determines whether or not people will come to him. And it's true even today. Many people in the world disdain the name of God. They hate the idea of God. And why is that? Well, primarily, it's because God's people have not been faithful. They have been doing things that bring God's name into shame. Just like the people in Malachi were. That's why this is such an important book for us to study. Um, Sometimes we do that as individuals. We do things and people know that we believe in God, but they look at how we live our lives and, that they, and people say, I don't wanna do that. Sometimes we're just so judgmental to people. Sometimes we condemn people out there in the world and, and we're not supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be loving them and doing what we can to help them, help draw them into a personal relationship with God because God's name is important. And everything he's going to do in this passage today and all the things that make us uncomfortable about believing in a God who does these things are all motivated by his passion for his people and he's trying to reverse the shame that the Israelites have been bringing onto his name. He says, if you do not listen and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. One of the responsibilities of a priest in the Old Testament structure was to pronounce blessings on people in God's name because God wanted to bless him. One of our equivalents today would be when we pray for people that good things will happen for people so that number one, they will have the blessing, and number two, God will be honored when these things happen. And, and we do that regularly, but sometimes we get really frustrated because nothing seems to happen, and maybe part of the reason is because we're not bringing honor on his name. When we pronounce things in God's name, and people look at that and they say, that's not a good thing, I don't wanna have anything to do with that God, God is going to step in occasionally and separate himself so that people know we're, we're not speaking for him when we do these things that don't represent his character and his love. And in this case, he says, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings so that when these priests that he was talking to 
would bless people in the name of the Lord, God would turn that blessing into a curse and bad things would happen. And so people would say, you're not speaking in God's name. I'm not gonna trust you. Because they see these people living lives that, weren't, that were disreputable, that were bringing shame upon God. And despite their announcing the blessings, their lives were having just the opposite effect on other people and were turning people away from God. And so God wanted to show that you don't speak for me, and so he turned their blessings into a curse. All because they had made the choice to not honor God. They had not set their hearts to honor him, even though they were priests in service of him. Verse three, because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. That phrase troubled me for the longest time. I mean, their descendants really didn't do the things. They did them. So what's this about? Well, the secret is understanding that all, behind all of this is God's passionate love for his people. 1 Timothy 5 says this, the sins of some men are obvious. They become public reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind. What that means is sometimes people don't find out what you've been up to until after you're gone. And it's your descendants who will harvest the blame, even though they did nothing to do it. That when we decide to turn our backs on God and fill our lives with things that are ungodly, our descendants, our children, and our grandchildren, they will pay the cost because other people will, will see what you've been doing and they will reject you and anyone identified with them. He says, I will spread on your faces the awful from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. What this is, is a reference to when they had their festivals and all the people were supposed to show up, they would offer sacrifices and then there would be parts of the animal that would be, that would be burnt as, a, as a, you know, an offering to God. There would be parts of the animal that would be eaten and enjoyed by the people who brought it and in some cases the priests and Levites who worked at the temple and this was a really good thing but there's some parts of the animal that you don't eat. This, you know, the intestines for instance and other part and other organs in the body uh, in which bad stuff accumulates. Um, and this would be gathered together and taken outside the camp and buried where, so that the bacteria and things inside these parts of the bodies would not affect anyone. What these priests were doing in turning people away from God was so bad and so disgusting that God was going to take the awful, the ugly parts of that animal and he says, uh, and this is a symbolic statement, I will smear them on your faces so that you will be unclean and you will be taken outside the camp where you will no longer have an effect on people. So God's pretty serious. He's pretty ticked off. Um, and I know this bothers people to think our God does things like this and says things like that, but that just shows how angry he is particularly when we remember, and I'll, I'll say this several times this morning, how much he really loves us, and it's his love that's behind this. Verse four. And you will know when he does these things, the people he does them to are going to know exactly why he does them. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Now we get down to what it is that is making God so angry. What these priests are doing under the name of serving God is threatening to destroy something very, very good that God has promised. He says, you're destroying it. I have promised something really good. 
This isn't about punishment. It's about discipline. God is not trying to punish people for what they've done. He's trying to get them to change what they do so that God will be able to give them and all the people they serve and all the nations around them who are watching the things that he has promised that he wants to do for them. Verse five, my covenant was with him. The hymn here refers back to Levi, but in reality it was one specific person which we'll talk about who was in the family of Levi. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him, the promise of life. I mean, Jesus himself, I come to bring life, and life abundantly. A covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. They would have peace, that if they just trusted God, man, things would be great. He says, poverty would be banished from the land. Every single thing that my people did would prosper. And people from countries all over the world would come to find out about this God that loves his people so much that he even gives them a day off when everybody else was working seven days a week. When he was blessing them and blessing them and blessing them and everybody else says, I wanna know this God too. And he made a covenant, a promise, a contract to bring these things. And that's what was at stake here. He says, I gave them to him. This called for reverence because without reverence, the name is brought into disrepute. This called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. He saw God's name not only as something good, but something important that he was there to serve and defend. The covenant of life and peace, I, I'd never before looked up what this was in reference to. I just assumed it, it was in reference to you know, the covenant that God made with Israel uh, and Mount Sinai after they came out of Egypt or, or later on uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, which it itself was a, a contract. But it turns out that when I looked this up, He's referring to one very specific instance. It's a reference to a story that happens in Numbers chapter 25. It's a story that Christians, because of our modern sensibilities, we don't really like to talk about. Many of you probably have never heard this story before. It's an ugly story. That's why we get nervous about teaching it uh, but a, a while back, a few weeks ago, you know, we were talking in the office, and one of the things that came up was, you know, a lot of times churches just skip over the uncomfortable passages. 6A Church, we don't want to be afraid of any of the uncomfortable passages because they're there for a reason, and so we teach them. And, and in order to understand what Malachi is referring to here, we need to talk about this story. Let me give you some background. Israel was in slavery in Egypt. This was before, right before the story of Exodus. They were suffering greatly. They called out to God. They'd been living there in Egypt for 400 years, and at least the last half of that, they'd been slaves, and their lives were miserable. They were calling out to God, and finally God answers them, and he raises up a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery, and he says, I'm gonna take care of you, and I'm going to do great things for you. You just need to trust me. And then God did some incredible things so that they would know who he was and that he was trustworthy. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my, my God, Yahweh, that's the Old Testament, actually the Old Testament name for Yahweh, it's a, it, for God, it's a Hebrew word and it, and it means I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. We usually, it's usually translated I am or I exist and of course he's the only God that can claim the name I am or I exist, because no other gods actually exist. He's the only one. And so Moses said to Pharaoh, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? Because in Egypt, they had lots of gods. 
And they worshiped all these different gods, and each god was over a different aspect of Egyptian life. And Why should I do anything that Yahweh tells me to do? And so God sent 10 plagues. We've heard this story, seen the movies. He sent 10 plagues, but what a lot of people don't realize is that each one of those plagues was a contest between God and the gods of Egypt where God specifically says, I'm gonna show you that I am more powerful than any of the gods of Egypt. And so every plague was a challenge to the gods of Egypt saying, I am sending this plague. What can you do to save your people? And of course, they couldn't do anything. And finally, it was so bad where he had defeated all the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh had to say, okay, get out of here. Just get out of my sight. And the Israelites were able to leave. Not only were they able to leave, but the people of Egypt started giving them all kinds of of jewelry and things. And jewelry in those days was money. They didn't have coins. All jewelry was usually made out of gold or silver and had a specific weight. So it could be used as money. And they were just pouring this stuff out, fine cloth, all kinds of things, wealthy things that they were pouring out on these people. And God had told them, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to have the Egyptians just bless you with all this stuff once you leave. And so this was another thing that God was doing. They left Egypt and they ended up turning, at one point, turning south into the Sinai Peninsula, which is a triangle and there was no way out. And so when Pharaoh saw them turning south, he said, hey, let's go get them. They're trapped. And so he take, gathers together his army, he goes after them. They go, then they're blocked by the Red Sea and they call to God and God says to Moses, stop calling to me, just tell the people to move out. I've got it taken care of. And God opens the Red Sea, the Israelites pass through on dry land, the Egyptian army, follows them, and the Israelites from the other side see God completely destroy the Egyptian army. And we know from history that there were no military excursions out of Egypt for the next four years. The Israelites witnessed all of this. And then God takes them to Mount Sinai, where Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments and, and, uh, a, much, and a covenant from God. And the people who are down off the mountain, they could hear God's voice. They knew what God was telling them. So they knew for an absolute fact that Moses wasn't making this stuff up, that when he came down with the law of God, that this wasn't something Moses had just made up, but that God had done it. And he leads them out, and we heard the story about the spies. He takes them up there, and they're ready to take the land. They didn't trust God, so now they're stuck with 40 years in the wilderness. And during that time, even though they they had turned on God, and even though through that period they continually and continually rebelled against him, God still gave gave them another chance. He still preserved them through all this. He gave them food every single day, not just enough food to get by, but food that would satisfy their appetites. And then he gave them water. A lot of people don't realize that there were somewhere between one and two million Israelites out there in that wilderness. And when God brought water out of the rock, it was not like we see in the movies where water starts trickling out of the rock and everybody, oh, look what God did. There was enough water that was coming out of those rocks that they came to throughout the desert to sate the thirst of all of those people. The greater Portland metropolitan area has something like 1 million, 1.2 million people. That's how many Israelites there were, and God gave them enough water for them and for their, their animals. It's amazing the things that God did for them during that time in the wilderness. There was absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind that this God was for real, and the stories of what God was doing were being talked about up in the land of Canaan where the Israelites were going, and they were being very impressed. And finally, the past generation had died out, and now their children had grown up and were the next generation. God says that we're ready to go into the land. And they, because God didn't want them to have to fight a war, he took them down a long way around the country of Edom. Then he took them a long way around the country of Moab. This was his way of protecting them. They came into the land, and then all of a sudden there were two kings there, one by the name of Sion and another by the name of Og. And they had 
attacked the Israelites, and the Israelites had an incredible victory. And they're just on the east side of the Jordan River. They can look across the river and see the land that God is going to give them. But now they had already received land that, that was over and above what God had promised. And it was such a great land that two of the tribes and half of another tribe says, this is where we want to live. Just give us this land, and we'll help all the other tribes go and conquer their land. And so they're spread out on this plain, and the king of Moab, which was a country just to the south, could sit, stand up on his mountains and look out there and see all of these Israelites, and he was scared. He was scared. Now, he knew of a prophet of God. This prophet's name was Balaam. We usually anglicize it as Balaam. You may have heard the name Balaam in your Sunday school classes. Balaam was a prophet of God, and the king of Moab sent him a treasure, saying if, you, if he would just come and in the name of God curse all of these people out there. And Balaam said, yeah, I want that treasure. I'm going to go. And God says, no, you can't go. But he says, oh, come on, God, let me go, let me go. And it may have been like one of those tantrums we hear about in the store. But Balaam just literally begged God to go. I promise I'll be good. I promise I'll be good. And God says, I'll let you go, but you can only say the words that I give you, nothing else. And so finally, Balaam got permission to go. He hopped on his donkey. And one of the stories that a lot of us know about is the donkey's going along and God sent an angel with a sword to stand in the road because Balaam was just thinking about the money. He didn't see the angel with the sword. The donkey did and the donkey stopped and Balaam starts beating the donkey and God made the donkey talk to Balaam. Why are you beating me? And finally Balaam realized that God had sent an angel with a sword and that if they had passed they would have been killed. And so he said, okay God, I will not say anything but what you tell me to say. So he goes to Moab, and four times the king of Moab asked him to curse these people, and Balaam blessed them and talked about all these incredible things that God was going to do for these people. And of course, the king of Moab was pretty furious, and he didn't want to give Balaam the money, but Balaam still wanted it. And now we're at the story that all of this was just a setup for. Balaam said, I still want that money. Listen, king, I'll tell you how you can destroy the Israelites. Send your women into their camp to seduce the Israelite men and then have them invite these men to the festival celebrating your God whose name was Baal and get them to start worshiping Baal and their God will turn on them. And the Midianites heard Balaam saying the same thing. This was another group, a nomadic group of people and said, hey, we went in on this. And so the Moabite women and the Midianite women went into the camp and all of these men who'd just been trudging around through the wilderness, just got through with a big battle. Oh, women, all right. And you can imagine that, especially if you're a guy. And they went with these women because there was the promise of sex and they, that promise was fulfilled. And they went with these women, and all of a sudden, God was furious with his people. And a plague, he sent a plague on them. And in one day, 24,000 people died of this plague, 24,000 Israelites, because they were going after these women. And in order to get the women, they were willing to worship these false idols. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons why God was giving the land of Canaan to the Israelites, because the culture of the people in that land was so bad. It was entirely corrupt. I mean, their worship included orgies. Their worship included all kinds of sacrifices and, you know, hurting yourself. It even included things like burning your children alive in fire in worship to these idols. It was a terribly, terribly corrupt culture, and that's why God was going to take the land away from them and give it to the Israelites, because 
they had become so corrupt that they were entirely irredeemable. And the Israelites were being drawn into this corruption. And when, in the height of this, when this plague was raging, one of the Israelite men and his Midianite girlfriend, he brought her into the center of the camp and he pitched a tent there in defiance of Moses and the priests and and the people who who were not involved in this. He set up his tent and in full view of everyone, he took his girlfriend into that tent. Well, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was high priest. He had a grandson named Phinehas who saw this and was so upset at the shame that was being brought upon his God, the God who'd done all those incredible things for them, that he took a spear, he went into that tent, and with a single thrust, he killed that man and his girlfriend. And God made a covenant with Phineas that day. You and your descendants, I will make a covenant with you forever. You will be able to serve me because you were zealous for my name. This is not a story we like. Because we don't like to think of our God being so angry. It's stories like this that give unbelievers the idea that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath while the New Testament God is a God of love. They're both gods of love. But God knew that the nations were watching because the nations had heard about what God had done for his people, how he rescued them from Egypt, how he kept them alive and thriving during 40 years of the wilderness. And now he was going to give them this land where they would prosper if they would only just trust him. And God knew that when all these people were turning away from him, all of these of his people turning away from him, that the nations were gonna say, well, that shows us what kind of God he is. And the nations would never want to come to know the God of Israel, the creator of all people throughout the world. This is why God was so angry and why he understood that Phineas saw that and he rewarded Phineas with a covenant of peace that would last forever. This is an important story. You know how we know? Because it's mentioned so many times in scripture, which is amazing that a lot of people are hearing this story for the first time, because it's important to God. The story is referred to later on in the book of Numbers. It's referred to in Deuteronomy. It's referred to in the Psalms. It's referred to in the book of Hosea, and in the book of Micah, And in the book of Micah, it's chapter six, verse three, where it's setting the stage for where we get the name of our church, Micah six, eight. I'm sorry, it's verse five of chapter six. And and so it's important even to us to set the stage of why God says, I have shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? It's not so hard. It's also referred to in Malachi, which we've just read, and even in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians and the book of Revelation, they talk about this story. In Revelation in particular, it's in the early chapters where there's seven letters to seven different churches, and in one of the churches he says, I've talked, you have in your midst somebody who's making the error of of Balaam, who's trying to seduce you away from your God. Balaam, incidentally, died shortly after this at the hand of the Israelites. They ended up having a battle with the Midianites and the Moabites, and Balaam was there with them, and he ended up dying. He could not get away from his passion for money. In Hosea, God says, when they came to Baal Peor, that's the name of the place, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Because the, all of these idols were vile. They caused people to do terribly corrupt things. And when people start worshiping those idols, they become vile themselves. And that breaks God's heart 
because he wants people to prosper. He wants people to understand how good righteousness is. In Numbers, this is the covenant. Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Phineas saved the lives of a lot of people. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. In Deuteronomy, which actually happened not very long after these events, Moses was speaking and he said, you saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. People who were faithful to God, even during that terrible time, they got to go into the land. What does this have to do with us today? How can we apply this to us? There are a lot of stories in the Old Testament where at the orders of God, the Israelites went out and went to war or or did all kinds of violent stuff. Fortunately, the church is not Old Testament Israel. There are people, believers, who somehow look at what God told the Israelites to do and they say, oh, that, that means it's my job to go out and attack people and to kill people who don't serve God. Um, You know, we see stories from time to time about people who have that attitude. But the church is not Old Testament Israel. You see, Israel's mission was to establish a kingdom with God as their king, that if they obeyed their laws, they would have literally a perfect society. No one would be poor. Everyone would prosper in what they did. Everyone would have property. All the nations of the world would look to Israel for wisdom and would come to Israel when they needed things because Israel had a God who actually heard them when they called on him. This was Israel's mission to be a light for the countries of the world so people could see what God was like by looking at their culture. And in some cases when the people wanted to destroy Israel, God came to their rescue and he preserved them. The only time during the history of Israel when it even came close to that was during the time of Solomon in which the country was at peace and people did come from all over the world to hear Solomon's wisdom, to see the beauty of the temple of God. To, to, they brought trade. It was, in a, it was a trade center of the world at that time. But even Solomon in all his wisdom ended up being led astray by his wives who worshiped other gods and led him into idolatry and ended up with his son, just literally almost destroying the country, breaking it into two so that one group went to the north and he ended up with a small section of the country left. That's because Israel just struggled and struggled and struggled trusting God. The church's mission is different. Our mission is to spread out through the world not to let the world come to us, but to spread out through the world and everywhere in the world form small communities that we call churches, small fellowships in which they would love each other and care for each other, in which everything about their lives would honor God so that the people around us, the people in our neighborhood would see how great our God is. That's our mission, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly, 
to let people see the good things that we do, that we don't just care for ourselves, but we care for our community so that people will see what kind of God we have. We need, God wants us to learn how to love the people around us as much as he does. In 1 Peter, God says we are a kingdom of priests. We don't just have some leaders who are the priests, but we are a kingdom of priests. There were four things that the priests were supposed to do. Said the priests were to consecrate the most holy things. That means the things that they used in worship to make sure they were the best. The modern day equivalent of that is to make sure that we don't have things in our church that bring shame upon God so that people who don't want to believe in God can accuse us of hypocrisy, of being sinners just like everybody else. And of course, we are sinners just like everybody else. The difference is we receive forgiveness because God loves us, and then we let him start changing us to set us free from the sins that we carry with us to protect the holiness of God's name. We are to offer, the priests are to offer sacrifices before God. What this is, is they are representing the people who come to God. In the Old Testament, they would bring offerings and sacrifices, and then the priests would, would help them, in some cases, go through the, the process. In other cases, the priests would take it and make the offering for them. And every one of the different sacrifices and offerings, when you start looking at the details of those sacrifices, every one of them is, every detail of those sacrifices is meant to assure people that God accepts you. He accepts the sacrifice that you've brought. He forgives you. You have nothing to fear from him. He wants you in his presence, and he wants you to celebrate, and he wants you to trust him. Everything in all the sacrifices was designed to do that. Well, we don't offer for sacrifices anymore, but we do act as the middlemen and women for people who are seeking God. We are here so that when people are seeking God, We help them to find God and to understand what that means. We give people the assurance, yes, no matter what you have done, no matter how how ugly your life has been, God can forgive that and he can make you into something incredible all because God's son, Jesus, died on that cross to pay the penalty for the wrong things that you've done. And you have nothing to fear from God He just wants you to trust him. And that's what we do as priests. And then the Old Testament priests were to minister before God. What this means is they would represent God to the people. I I think next week the passage that uh, David will be teaching us deals with that aspect. But it's basically they minister to the people. And that's what we do. When we go out doing things for the community, when we have our food pantry, um, when, we, when we do our fathers in the field to provide mentors for fatherless boys, other things that, that we do, is to minister, to be God's representative, to take good things to other people so that people can understand that God isn't what our culture says he is but he's someone who just really cares about them. And then the last one, the priests were to pronounce blessings in his name, and we need to do that as well. We need to be willing to sit down with people and pray with them to understand that if they just trust God, God will go through the crisis with them. God will will help them, will provide them with what they need. We need to be teaching people that. We need to be sitting down and praying with people. Now, we have a few people in our church who are known for praying with other people, and they're people that you can always come to when you need prayer. But every one of us can do that because we're all priests. Every person here can sit down with somebody else, and they say, man, I've been having a really bad day. And you can say, well, can I just say a little prayer for you? I mean, there's no magic words that you have to use. It's just all the passion of your heart. And we can do that and pronounce blessings for people because God says he hears us. Violence is not an option for the church of the 20th century. 
we are, we do have the job of making sure that within our walls, within the, the boundaries of our spiritual family, that God's righteousness is protected, that things are not going on that are gonna bring shame to God's name. And we all are, are expected to make the decision in our heart in advance, I'm going to do things that will honor God's name. I'm not going to do things that bring shame on him. Because there's a lot at stake. Because there's a lot of people out there in the world who need to know him. And unless we set out, we set our hearts on honoring the name of God, those people will just be pushed further and further. We all have stories, I think, of, of things that we've seen in the church or things that the church or Christians have done out in our community that have pushed people away from God. We're not a church that does those kinds of things. At least we tr- we're trying to learn how to be that kind of a church. But that's what we need to do as individuals because God's name is important because it's the only hope that people have and we carry that name with us, and everything we do needs to honor him. That's the message of these five verses. Let's pray. And the worship team can come on up. My Lord, I just thank you so much that you love us. You know, every one of us can look back and remember things that we've done that have brought shame on you, whether it's before we knew you or even after. We know you forgive us. We know you've given us your spirit to transform us over the course of our life to make us into somebody that really does represent you. And I just wanna pray for anybody here this morning who is just struggling with things in their own lives because there are some things out there that are really powerful. There There are things, lots of things in our culture that are actively trying to pull us away from you. Just give, let your spirit just pour out strength to the people who are here this morning so that those things that we, we know shouldn't be there, will, we will have the strength to make the right decisions. And most importantly, we'll have the strength to just trust the things that you say because they're just evidence that you love us. We thank you so much. 